Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. A very good afternoon. This is Peter Williams back on Reality Check Radio after a good long break overseas. What did I do? Well, we started off by walking part of the El Camino, the St. James pilgrimage track in northern Spain. We walked from San Sebastian to Bilbao, just a mere 125 kilometres over six days. It was, shall we say, a challenging experience in very hot weather. Uh, After that, we toured around other parts of Spain before joining up with a tour party to watch the All Blacks' last three matches at the Rugby World Cup. The quarterfinals and the semifinals were fantastic. The final, uh, for obvious reasons, not quite so much. Anyway, six weeks away has given me plenty of time to reflect on what I want to do in my life. And frankly, with my next birthday being my 70th, I don't want to work much anymore. So I've come back from the big trip and decided to really cut back my commitments. I'm reducing my workload here uh, to one day a week up until Christmas. That will be Friday afternoons, but I'm still planning to do some regular writing and broadcasting on the issues of the times, and uh, those pieces will be available on RCR on days other than Fridays. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR. Reality Check Radio. The much underestimated Ronald Reagan was befitting his former career as a broadcaster and actor, an absolute master of the put-down line. You know, during a debate against his Democratic opponent, Walter Mondale, in the 1984 election campaign, Mondale had the temerity to raise the issue of the incumbent president's age. Ronnie Reagan at the time was 73. Mondale, a former vice president and senator, was just 56. But Reagan said this, quote, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience, unquote. Even Mondale laughed at that one, en route to Ronald Reagan winning the largest electoral college majority, 525 to 13 in US presidential election history. So Reagan's line came to mind as this interregnum between the election and the formation of a government is being filled with various political puff pieces. One featured three members of so-called Generation Z making it into the House of Representatives after this latest election. Uh, To save you looking it up, by the way, Generation Z was born between January the 1st, 1997 and December the 31st, 2012. The three youngsters profiled in this piece were Te Pāti Māori's Hana Rafiti Maipi Clark, who is just 21, and 26-year-olds Tamatha Paul from the Greens and Nationals Tom Rutherford. Now, if it is truly to be a House of Representatives, there can never be any complaints about having a smattering of youngsters across the 123 seats. Far be it from this uh, ageing baby boomer, to put a dampener on the enthusiasm of youth, but I suspect the reporting of these youngsters' imminent arrival in the halls of power is more a reflection of the age and generation of the reporters than of uh, actual and likely reality. Because according to the Generation Z journalists, 
This age group, quote, has expressed significant changes in thinking on issues such as the environment, race relations and gender. It's a generation which has challenged traditional ways of working, living and thinking about social issues, unquote. Which is all very well. But hasn't every younger generation thought differently about the world compared to their parents and grandparents? Is the way some 20-somethings think about the world in 2023 markedly different to the way those born, say, in the 1950s were looking at the world of the 1970s? In other words, every generation brings new thinking to their view of the world and can't be convinced that the way it was and is should be the way forward. Therefore, we have many of a younger generation today believing that the planet will burn itself out unless we stop driving diesel utes and farming dairy cars. A younger generation which believes that you can be a woman just because you say you are. And a generation that thinks working for a living and being productive is, is well, just an option. But then the 1950s kids thought war was pointless and New Zealand shouldn't get involved in other people's fights, unless, of course, it was South Africa. Although you look at that place now and think, was it really worth it? We also won the battle against nuclear testing, and we were open-minded enough to realise that the Treaty of Waitangi had been dishonoured and recompense was required. Children born in the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s all faced their issues as teenagers and young adults too. In other words, being born from 1997 onwards is not in any way special. And as these Gen Zers will find out, one's thinking and attitudes to issues in life may well change with maturity over time. As Winston Churchill once said, or was it John Maynard Keynes, I don't know, quote, when the facts change, I change my mind. At any rate, being elected as an MP in your 20s is not that unusual. The better questions are, how did that young person perform in the job? Was it a long-term career? And did those young MPs leave any legacy? So, what I've done is come up with a random call of youthful MPs from the last 50 years. Let's go through some of them. Number one, Marilyn Waring, elected as the National Party MP for Raglan in 1975 at the age of 23. She lasted nine years. She was outed as being gay, never made cabinet, and fell out with the Prime Minister Rob Muldoon over nuclear disarmament. She did the country a huge favour by promising to vote against her party's government, which brought on the 1984 snap election. She left politics for a successful life in academia. Number two, Richard Preble won Auckland Central in 1975 for Labour at the age of 27. Spent nine years in opposition before being part of the most reforming and influential government since World War II. He left Labour to form ACT and in all spent 27 years in politics. A young man of the 1970s, his imprint is still being felt today. Number three, Bill English became MP for Wallace in 1990 at the age of 28. One of the country's better ministers of finance and potentially the best long-term prime minister the country never had. Although a fiscal conservative, his approach to welfare based on actual need and social investment was a path the country should have followed 
after his departure in 2018. A long and successful career, which frankly still had some distance to run when he quit. Number four, Deborah Morris. Now here's a name for the trivia quizzes. She became the country's youngest ever cabinet minister in 1996 as a 26-year-old List MP with New Zealand First, who was then made Minister for Youth Affairs. She lasted two years before falling out with Winston Peters. She never even completed her only parliamentary term. And number five, Mike Moore. Originally the MP for Eden in 1972 at the age of 23, a free-thinking and high-profile Labour MP who championed the country's export potential. Remember, Lamburgers, anyone? He finally ascended to the Prime Minister's office for six shambolic weeks before the 1990 election. He then led the Labour Party till 1993 before retiring first to the backbenches and then to the diplomatic and world trade roles that he performed successfully. He died at the age of 71 after a career that will always be described as colourful. And number six in this random list, Todd Barclay, MP for Clutha Southland from 2014 to 2017. He was 24 years old when elected, but he quickly fell out with local electorate staff who had worked with the previous MP Bill English for over 20 years. He didn't stand again in 2017 when clandestine recordings of conversations with his staff were revealed. He is and was a political failure. Now, there are numerous others I could refer to as MPs making their debut in the House before the age of 30. Some names are well known. Phil Goff, Jacinda Ardern, Simeon Brown. Others like Darren Hughes left under a large question mark. Simon Upton lasted 20 years and went to a career in environment, uh, environmental protection and advocacy. And the jury is, of course, still out on Chloe Swarbrick, already into her third term as an MP and still in her 20s. So an arrival at Parliament as a youngster actually tells us nothing about the MP's likely impact and legacy. The feature of the success stories above, like Bill English, Mike Moore, Richard Preble, is adaptability. They became MPs as young firebrands, but they learned quickly to play the political game and therefore achieved significant legacies. The three Gen Zers in the current intake could do a lot worse than to learn the lessons of the not-too-distant past. The parliamentary press gallery could also do well to remember those lessons. Plus, Ronald Reagan's rather cynical but sage advice from nearly 40 years ago, not to be starstruck by the promise of youth. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now. Now I want to talk about this. I think it's important. Judicial activism is showing no signs of slowing down and frankly it is a stain on our society. If you have a fraction of Maori in your bloodline, it is, according to a family court judge, quote, necessary to consider familial, community and cultural matters 
which are inherent in the development of the identity of a Māori child. These considerations are different from those for a Pākehā child. Unquote. Now, if you're concerned about the growing level of tension and race relations in this country, look no further than those appalling words from family court judge Jill Moss. How can a member of our judiciary state that Māori are different from non-Māori and say that some children in New Zealand need a different kind of upbringing to others? What's more, this judge says the obligation to consider those familial, community and cultural matters arose from the Treaty of Waitangi. That is insulting and arrant nonsense. Which article of the treaty says some New Zealanders should be treated differently to others? Even those with just a rudimentary knowledge of the treaty understand the three articles. One, the chief ceded the right to govern to the Crown. Two, Māori would retain ownership and control over their lands and other property. And three, all New Zealanders would become British subjects. It is in Article 3 that the concept of all the ordinary people of New Zealand having the same rights and duties of citizenship as the people of England is very clearly spelled out. So how can a learned judge of the family court reinterpret a much-studied document of 183 years ago and find that some ordinary people of New Zealand have different rights and duties? Now, this whole family court debacle came about after a gay female couple wanted a child and decided for reasons best known to themselves to have a Maori sperm donor. The complication came when the mother and the sperm donor signed an agreement allowing the donor to have a role in the child's life. A bad, bad mistake. If you're female and gay and want a child, keep the father anonymous and out of both your life and the life of the child. It's much less complicated. In this case, the relationship between the mother and the sperm donor fell apart. Yet the donor wanted not just to be a part of his daughter's life, but also insisted that, quote, she be aware of her identity and proud of her heritage, unquote. A psychologist's report quoted the sperm donor father as saying his daughter needed, quote, urgent attention to matters relating to her identity and a defined sense of belonging within her whanau. That approach does not accord with Eurocentric social science theory, unquote. Now, in the end, the judge decided this sperm donor father can see his daughter once every three weeks. This young girl is currently five years old. Frankly, I despair at the confusing upbringing she will have. But I despair more at the insults that educated people are throwing at my non-Maori, or if you like, Pākehā culture. I've always led a way of life where family connections are paramount and where we all have a sense of belonging. I'm deeply offended that a family court judge says that Maori children should have different considerations than that for a Pākehā child, and that a psychologist believes Eurocentric social science theory, whatever the hell that is, does not include a sense of belonging inside a family. Frankly, it is time academics in ivory towers stopped praising Māori and whānau life as superior to the life of the rest of us, because it is not. We are all New Zealanders. 
we all have under Article 3 of the treaty the same rights and duties of citizenship. It is written down. It is time to stop these insults. It is time to stop the division. It will help to ease the tension. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even better, if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. I want to talk on this Friday afternoon about farming. There is a Maori proverb which goes, Hey tangata, hey tangata, hey tangata. It is the people, the people, the people. But farmers around the country don't believe that now. They say that bureaucrats and regional council officials are putting the health of fresh water ahead of their ability to make a living from the land and to produce food for the world. Now they're waiting anxiously to see if the incoming government can do something to make their industry less stressful. A combination of the national policy statement on freshwater management and the insistence from politicians and bureaucrats that methane emissions must be reduced has led to a plethora of regulations, the implementation of which are time-consuming and expensive for farmers. Now, the latest group to feel the heat are farmers in Northland. There, the regional council has released its draft freshwater plan change, which threatens get this 40% of the province's productive land. According to the latest Farmers Weekly, more than 250,000 hectares of land with more than a 25 degree slope will not be allowed to have grazing animals on it unless farmers get a consent to permit the activity. All dairy effluent discharges to land will also need a resource consent. Now Northland generates about a billion dollars worth of agricultural export income annually. Farmer groups suggest these proposals would reduce that by up to 30%. According to the council, these plans will improve freshwater quality and lower the amount of sediment flowing in the rivers out to the sea. But the most staggering thing about these proposals is that the Northland Regional Council has told farmers that freshwater quality comes before people. The same message has been given to Otago farmers in the Manuherakia Valley in central Otago. They face a dwindling supply of water as the regional council there looks to reduce the irrigation take in order to improve the flow of the river. But back to Northland. The threat to production and to farmers' incomes is real. The need to put in fences, riparian planting and reduce stock numbers is predicted to mean a profit reduction per farm of between 8 and 21% before tax. The Regional Council acknowledges that the threat to farm incomes is significant, but in keeping with putting the health of the water ahead of the well-being of the people who live in the region, Council staff are suggesting farmers plant permanent forests and claim carbon credits with full offset at $35 a tonne. In other words, the Regional Council doesn't want farms and doesn't want farming communities. It just wants scruffy trees to sequester carbon. 
Northland has two farmer MPs, the new National Party man for the Northland electorate, Grant McCallum, along with ACT's Mark Cameron. I think it's likely their phone and email lines will be running hot with disgruntled local farmers wanting an end to this madness. Yes, clean water is important and we can't survive without it, but there must be a better way to improve the health of Northland's waterways than to put hard-working farmers out of business. Frankly, it is time the Northland Regional Council came into the real world, a world where people matter more than anything else, including fresh water. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. This is Peter Williams. Thank you for being with me this afternoon. My email is inbox at realitycheck.radio or you can text me on 2057. Have a great weekend. I look forward to being with you again next Friday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to realitycheck.radio slash members and join now.